Please have Zechariah 13 open in front of you. And in particular, this morning, we're looking at verse 7. And uh, as we approach this Easter season, uh, obviously in our series in Matthew, it wasn't too long ago that we looked at the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus into Jerusalem on what is often called Palm Sunday. And at the beginning of that climactic week, which would lead to the cross, the Lord Jesus had entered Jerusalem to the acclamation of the crowds. The city was overflowing with those who had come for Passover, many more who were coming with the Savior, and hundreds of thousands were come together as they cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David. And by their words, at least, the crowds hailed Jesus as King. They hailed him as promised Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior. And there was great excitement and there was adulation. But all the while, there was tragic undertones. And as he rode into Jerusalem, the crowd was at fever pitch, but everything about it declared that this king and his kingdom was very different. He came riding a donkey. He had no military might. He had no weapons. His closest followers were outcasts. They were nobodies. There was no pomp. There was no glory. There was no earthly majesty. The king had come, but he had come to die. He had come to accomplish a rescue mission planned before the foundation of the world and prophesied throughout the Old Testament, including here in our text. And I want us to see this morning the significance of this particular prophecy in terms of what Jesus came to do. Now, if you look at Zechariah 13, I want you to see that there are at least two prophecies in this passage concerning the Lord Jesus and his saving work. And the first one is found in the first verse. If you look at verse 1, we have a reference there to the fountain open. And Christ himself is that fountain open. You know, he is described like this because he alone has the power to cleanse, to cleanse away sin and guilt, just as the waters of a fountain can cleanse away filth. And only the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross can deliver and wash people like you and me from their sin. A fountain shall be opened for sin and uncleanness. That speaks of the Lord Jesus. But then later, verse 7, we have this second prophecy, and it is a great but often neglected prophecy concerning Jesus. And that's our focus this morning. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Friend, I ask you straight away, I wonder if you have ever realized how important these words are for your own life? Have you ever come to see that there is nothing as important in the world as to know and understand the revelation of God and similar prophecies from the Scriptures concerning the Lord Jesus? This demands your utmost attention because what we consider this morning is so vital, it is so important, and it is utterly essential to our eternal well-being. And you see, in this verse, we are found to be given answers to the question, who is Jesus? And I want you to see that there are two terms which refer to the Lord Jesus Christ in our text. The first is shepherd. Now, we all know that the work of a shepherd is to look after sheep. That's obvious. 
Shepherd and sheep, they go together. Now, Christ is referred to the shepherd because his people are his sheep. You know, it's a wonderful thing to be able to say with confidence as the psalmist in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, it's for this reason that our blessed Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, says himself in John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And Christ, therefore, is the shepherd in the sense that he is the, the savior of his people. He is the protector. He is the deliverer. He is the overseer. He guides them through life. In times of trouble, he restores their soul. When we go through the valley of the shadow of death, if he is our shepherd, we need fear no evil, nor harm, because he is with us. And his rod and his staff will comfort us. All those great blessings of Psalm 23 are relevant to those for whom Christ is their shepherd. Those who know him and believe in him. And so that's the first description of who is Jesus. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. But also see as well, it speaks against the man that is my fellow or my companion. Now, this is less commonly understood, but it's important. The term companion or fellow in the original language means somebody who is next of kin. It means somebody who is closely related to you, someone who shares your, your nature, your blood, as it were, one who is therefore interested in you and cares for you. And this word indicates that Jesus is kin unto God. Now, that's a remarkable thing. It is important because in this verse, Jesus is regarded by God as next of kin to God the Father. In other words, it is a, a description of the divine nature of Jesus, that he is equal with the Father, that he is the Son, fully God. But he's also a man. See that it says, the man who is my fellow. And so this Savior is fully God and yet fully man. He is in our nature as the shepherd and the man, but he is also in the divine nature as the kinsman of God. Jesus said in John 10, I and my father are one. You know, he's speaking there not of one person, but, but one God. The father and the son are different persons, but different persons within the one Godhead. Two persons within the divinity, within the, the trinity. And as we come to Easter and we consider these incredible events, and really at any time when we think of who Jesus was and what he came to do, it is essential that you understand who he is and to believe that he really is fully God and fully man. Dear friends, there are an increasing number of popular teachers and movements which do not proclaim that truth. But the Bible is clear on the unique person of Jesus. It's not enough to call him a hero or a teacher or an example or even Lord of the angels or anything like that. You must never accept any definition of Christ which makes him anything less than God. And I'll tell you why. Because if he is anything less than God, he cannot save us from our sins. Jesus Christ isn't just a, another great man like that. He is the God-man. 
And John stresses this at the very beginning of his gospel account. You know, those well-known words in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, Christ. The Word was with God, the Father. And the Word was God, meaning God the Son. Jesus is equal with God. Now let me come directly to you this morning and to your conscience. Do you believe that? Do you believe that about the Lord Jesus? Do you accept that Jesus Christ is God? Be honest with yourself. Because, you know, if you say it outwardly, but you don't really believe it for yourself, it will do you no good. Your salvation depends on what you believe concerning God, concerning Christ, and concerning this person here who is referred to as the shepherd and the kinsman of God. You know, I love to think on Christ as shepherd. And in fact, before he even came into the world, the Son of God was the shepherd of his sheep, you know, even though he did not yet take to himself human nature. And all through the Old Testament, from the fall, Christ was always the shepherd, always looked after his sheep, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and onwards, all the way through the Old Testament. Christ, as the eternal Son of God, looking after his people, the mediator, the shepherd of his people, but when he came to Bethlehem and was born a baby, there he was, the God-man. As one explains, he became what he was not before. And the best way to put it is this. When our Lord Jesus was born, he became what he was not without ceasing to be what he was. The Word became flesh. And it's the greatest miracle that could ever occur, that God should take human nature and Jesus Christ needed to become man in order to finish his work of saving his sheep you see as God Christ could not die as God Christ could not suffer it is impossible for God to suffer or to die you can't kill God he is eternally and unchangeably blessed, so you cannot kill him. If Christ was to be our saviour, he must die for us. So in the wonderful counsels of God, this one who was equal with the Father took our nature, our humanity to himself, into union with himself, so that he could now suffer for us. So that he could now die for us in our nature. You know, there are many errors being promoted today which say that really it was possible for anyone, any one of us, could have done what Jesus did if they had the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But friends, that is utter nonsense. Why did it have to be the Lord Jesus? Why the incarnation of the eternal Son of God? The answer is because no mere man is worthy to die for his brother. Every mere man is but a man, so it was necessary that the shepherd who would die for us must be a man, but also God. He must be the shepherd who is also the equal of God. You know, the song of heaven concerning the Lord Jesus will be this. You are worthy. You were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. The worthiness of Christ in his death consists of the fact that he is of infinite value to God. And his death is of infinite preciousness to God. 
So who is Jesus? He is fully God. He is fully man. He is the shepherd. He is the one sent. He is the only savior. Now consider what it says about the shepherd and the fact that the shepherd will be struck. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Now, you say, well, what is that talking about? Well, the sword of God is not a literal sword in that sense. That much is obvious. What is meant here by the sword is the power of God to put people to death. You know, power to kill. We have no right to take life. We have no right to kill. But God has because he is Lord and he has the power of life and death over all things. And so the sword is the power which God both has and uses to put men and women to death because they're sinners. It's the outgoing of God's holiness in righteous anger against the sin of which we are all guilty. The fact that God doesn't instantly condemn us, my friends, condemn us all to death, is only because of his patience and his long-suffering. If God was to wield his sword and bring it upon us as we deserve, not one of us could survive. But God has given days and years and centuries allowing men and women time in this world because of his patience and his long-suffering and his kindness to us, an expression of his goodness to us. Jeremiah 47 verses 6 to 7 speaks about the sword of the Lord. It is this power of death over sinners. And that's why when people are genuinely convicted of their sin, they fear God. They fear God. You know, even before that, amongst people generally, we know that there is is something wrong with us and that we are not fit to appear before the great and holy God. We may not admit it to others, but we're aware of it in our hearts and our consciences. Eternity, the awareness of God is written on our hearts and there is a a sense of the awesomeness and the holiness of God and his right to punish us. And friends, may I say, that is why in speaking to others about the Lord, we must not minimize that God is holy and that God is to be feared because the sinner's fear of God is absolutely justified. The sinner has every right to be afraid of God because they will face this holy God and his sword of judgment. Outside of Christ, every sinner faces death and judgment. Every sinner who has died has done so at the point of God's sword. And it's so important that we speak truth. You know, if we love people, if we love those around us who as of yet don't know the Savior, if we truly love them, we'll tell them the truth. If we long for them to come to know the Lord Jesus, we must not lie to them and say, oh, well, you don't need to be afraid of God because, you know, God's easygoing and he's a God of love and he'll just embrace you as you are. No, God is to be feared. Without the Savior, each and every sinner will face the execution of his judgment and wrath for all eternity. You know, many only want to speak of God as a God of indiscriminate love. But as one explains, according to the Bible, God is a God of love, but that love of God is expressed towards those who are believers in Christ. And it is offered freely to those who would like to become believers in Christ. But those who have no interest in Christ and are all concerned to become the people of Christ have every reason to fear. That's why we plead with people. We love people. 
We must tell them the truth that unless they find the love of God in Christ, unless they find that safety in him, they have every reason to fear the future and the sword of the law. You know, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ for yourself, with all my heart, I urge you to run to him. You know, in our text this morning, we've got this command. And it's really prophetic language. God now begins to take out the sword and to use it. Awake, O sword. The sword, as it were, had been at God's side. But now something is happening, which means that the sword will be woken up and used. You know, there are so many people in this world, maybe you, who think that they can live as they please without any reference to God. Some have lived for for many years and they get away with their sin and they don't think they'll ever have to face this sword. And sinners think that God doesn't really take too much notice of of their sin or that because he's kind and he's loving that that eventually he'll just accept them because really he doesn't want to punish the wicked and it'll be okay in the end. This is not what the Bible says. Everyone outside of Christ will have to face this judgment. But actually, our text here takes us beyond a general judgment to something specific. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. And this is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. The shepherd being struck. It brings us to the very pinnacle of the Savior's life and work. The sword of the Lord, as it were, had been asleep for those 30 years, 33 years of of Christ's life and ministry. But now as he gave his life upon the cross, as he was crucified, this command goes forth from God the Father to his holy justice to awaken and to strike the shepherd, to strike at Christ. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow. You know, all these prophecies, they are so clear as to the work that God would do in making Christ our substitute. And we know without question that this speaks of Jesus because Jesus said it of himself. Matthew 26, 31, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. God would strike his son on the cross with the sword of painful, terrible justice to save sinners. You know, God did not delight in the pain or the dishonor of his son. It was an infinitely horrible thing for the, for the son of God to face such things and to be treated like this. But God did not spare his son. You know, the Bible says that Judas delivered Jesus over, that Pilate delivered Jesus over, that Herod and the Jewish rulers delivered Jesus over, that Jewish people, even the Gentiles, delivered him over. Even we, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, even we delivered him over to death. It says that Jesus delivered himself over to death. But in Romans 8.32, Paul says that behind and beneath And through all those, God the Father was delivering his son to death. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. His eternal will and purpose in Judas and Pilate and Herod and the crowds and Gentile soldiers and our sin and even the lamb-like submission of the Lord Jesus, God 
delivered his son. And nothing greater has happened. God the Father ordained that the sword of divine wrath, of curse and condemnation and judgment should enter into the body and soul of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God delivered him over for all who would believe. And this incredible intervention would save people from every tribe and language and nation. The striking of Christ here is an awesome thing. Do you know, whenever God uses the sword in the Old Testament, its impact was terrible. I could give you so many examples, you know, of judgments brought by the sword of the Lord through the Scriptures. You know, think of the days of Noah. Sin abounded, and despite all the, the preaching and the pleading for 120 years about the coming sword, people scoffed and mocked and jeered, had no faith. As soon as Noah was safely in the ark with his family, God commanded his sword, and the flood wiped out the rest of the world's population. You know, many other examples could be given in the New Testament, and even in the world today. And the tragedy is that where people are not believers in Christ, this sword sends them at once into a lost eternity. And you say, well, if God brought this sword against the shepherd, if God brought this against the Lord Jesus, what happened? What happened when this happened? What happened when the sword was brought against Jesus? Here, for the first and only time, the sword of God was brought against the Lord Jesus. Now, there is something that we need to be very clear about. The sword did not kill Christ as others. And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, when God the Father took out the sword and struck the Savior on the cross, plunging it into him as it were, the sword could kill the human nature of Christ, but it could not kill the divine nature of Christ because God cannot be killed. And so during those three days in which Jesus was dead, he died in terms of his human body nature, his human soul was in heaven, but his divine nature did not die. Beyond that, we dare not go. Here is the shepherd who is the equal of God, the sword awakening to put him to death for us as our saviour. And we have this incredible fact that when the Lord Jesus Christ's body was in the grave, and the Lord Jesus Christ's human soul was in heaven for three days, his divine nature was holding them both. His divine nature was holding the, the body in the grave, the human soul in heaven for three days. His divine nature was doing that. And that meant that he saw no corruption. There was no beginning of decay within his body. There was a divine miracle preserving intact all the particles of his human body in a state of death, no decomposition of any kind. And then when the third day came, the divine nature of Christ brought together the soul and the body of Christ and raised him from the dead. We know that the Bible says that God raised him that the Holy Spirit raised him, but we can also rightly say that he raised himself. John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, speaking of his life. I lay it down of myself, I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This is the reality of what Jesus did. The Savior being struck, an awesome thing. Eternal justice and wrath engulfing our Lord Jesus on the cross. His human nature brought to death. He experienced pain and agony in the mind and in the body. But his divine nature like a mountain 
was immoved in death because he died as the God-man. The tempest broke out upon him. All was set upon him to atone. And he did that work. There in the darkness of Calvary, this wonderful triumph was accomplished. And my dear friends, the Lord Jesus died, not because of any sins of his own, but he died according to the will of God for the sins of those who believe. He died for sinners like us, for our salvation. He died to bear our sin in his own body upon the tree. He died and endured the full power of the sword so that you and I might be forgiven and brought to forgiveness of sins and to eternal life through faith in him. This was God's method of dealing with the sins of the sheep, smite the shepherd in order that the sheep be spared. Smite the shepherd who would go in their place as their substitute. He who would bear their sins in himself and was punished, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know, the Bible says that we are all like sheep, gone astray, gone our own way, but that the Lord has laid on him, speaking of the Lord Jesus, the iniquity of us all, believers. He never sinned, but he became sin for us. And our sins were laid upon him. That substitution, he took our place. He died for us. And the sinner who comes to Jesus finds that all their guilt, all their sin, all the condemnation that they would face outside of Christ is laid upon him. And in exchange, they are given forgiveness. They are given Christ's perfection, Christ's righteousness. They're given everlasting life and peace and deliverance. It's wonderful. And how through repenting of our sin and believing in Jesus Christ alone, both of which are gifts of the grace of God, we bring nothing but our sin. And this tremendous exchange happens where in Christ we are given everything. We call it imputation and counter-imputation. Christ was righteous. He deserved no death. We are unrighteous. We deserve death by the sword. But by the kindness of God, by the love of God and the mercy of God, he crossed over these things so that the sword that should have smote us, that should have struck us, struck him. And we receive his righteousness to our account. And when we believe in him, he becomes the Lord, our righteousness for us. It's a staggering thing. And friend, we do not value what the Lord Jesus has done until we come to benefit from it by trusting him for ourselves. We don't understand the wonder of all this until we actually give our hearts, our lives, our everything to Christ. We never know what he has done or how wonderful his kindness is until our own hearts are touched by it, by the grace of God, when we're saved, when we're converted, when we're brought by the grace of God into the Christian faith and we become personally under the sense of our indebtedness to Jesus Christ and we love him. We love him. And we know that for us, it is only Jesus. 
Only Jesus can do helpless sinners good. I wonder, do you know this Savior for yourself? I'm not asking you if you know about him. I'm not asking you if you can recount to me, you know, the details of Easter week and the, the crucifixion. I'm not asking that. I'm asking, do you know him? Have you met Christ in your own life? Have you come to put your trust personally in this blessed and holy Savior, Jesus Christ, who died the just for the unjust, the shepherd who was struck in the place of his people? That is the only way to have eternal life. There is no other way to look to Christ and to believe in him and then to stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. You know, what are the consequences of the shepherd being struck? And with this, we draw it to an end. Look at what it says. It says, smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Well, see two things there. The sheep are scattered. One way to understand this is that when our Lord was crucified, his disciples who were his sheep were literally scattered in the sense that they were afraid and so they ran away. They deserted him and they hid themselves. But there is a little more than that and a number of commentators suggest that it speaks of the Jewish people being scattered across the world as a judgment following the crucifixion. And the reality of that scattering is one of the evidences of this truth scattered throughout this world. But then the other consequence that we see is it says, I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And God is referring there to those who are his people, his believing people, those in Christ. And as a consequence of our Lord's death and suffering, God says he will turn his hand upon those who are his people, those who are his true sheep, to bless them. Ezekiel 37, I will be their God and they shall be my people. He says, I will turn my hand towards them to gather them out of this world to myself. I will have my people out of all the nations. It is so glorious. And you know, even today, more and more of these little ones are being brought to believe in Jesus across the world. The blessings of the work of the shepherd are being known and felt even today. I will turn my hand upon the little ones. And do you know what that means? It means that if you're a believer, you are utterly safe in Christ. The shepherd who laid down his life for you also guards and keeps his sheep forever. And be assured that when death comes your way as a believer, you won't be facing the sword. Death will not come to the believer as a sword, but as a gracious deliverance. The body sleeping in wait for the final resurrection, the soul immediately with Christ, the hand of God in Christ towards us in blessing, in grace, in favor, in life, in death, in eternal glory at last. For the believer, death is the doorway into the heavenly cane and the, the promised rest to be with Christ which is far better. We will be brought to be with him. And our eyes will see him because God will give us grace and glory. We lack nothing if we have Christ. You are safe in him. But you need to know this, the blessings of eternal life 
are not automatic for every man, woman, and child. These blessings of protection and safety and forgiveness and life and heaven and glory are given to those who are believers, to those who know Jesus for themselves. And whatever your condition, whatever your state of life, you make sure that whatever else you have, that you have Christ as your personal shepherd. The shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep, who was struck by the sword for them, but who was overcome, has conquered death, and now rules and reigns, and one day will return. When with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see, twill be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. The shepherd struck for his people. Do you know this shepherd? I pray that you do. And I pray that you'll join with me in being stunned, amazed in the presence of this Savior. Amen.